0: Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm here with Joel Naum, and he, we're here with the author of Barrowville, Dan Box. Welcome. It's
1: pleased to be here. Thanks for coming. So this is a fascinating read, and I I don't really know where to start because it's had such an interesting journey to get to print. So I thought maybe we'd start there with how this how you got involved in the, the how story. How the book
2: came to be. Uh, yeah. This all started when a homicide detective... A guy called Gary Jubelin asked to meet me, which I was a crime reporter at the time for a newspaper. You never get asked to meet cops. You ask to meet them. They don't ask to meet you. So that was strange. And when I met him, he told me about a murder, three murders, which is what the book's about. The murder of three Aboriginal children, all in one town, all within a few months of each other, all of which are unsolved. And that was the beginning of the book. And then from there... I went to the town, I met the people. We did a podcast about it for the newspaper I worked for. And those people, those families told their story. And eventually the case went back to court and they tried to convict the man the police have believed for a long, long time was was guilty of these murders. And the book charts those stories, the stories of the murders, the stories of the investigation, and then the story of finally it being sent back to court. But that's where it began. Mm. And... How, how was it
1: sort of converting the reporting and the podcast into an actual physical experience of writing a book?
2: It was difficult. It was really, <laughs> really difficult. Um, not because of the actual work involved in writing a book, although there's a lot of that, mm. um, because I went back and I, I started looking at the whole thing again. So I'd written about it for the paper, we'd done a podcast on it, I thought I knew it, but then doing the book I went back to the beginning and started again. And there's a hundred more interviews, many more documents, and it got more and more difficult to tell the story because there was so much more doubt, so much more ambiguity. I thought I was certain what had happened. And by the end of the writing of the book, I was far less certain that I knew what took place when those three kids were killed than I was at the beginning of it.
1: Even after doing the podcast? Even after doing the podcast. That is fascinating. Mm.
2: Really fascinating. Yeah, it surprised me. It's it's a true crime story, true crime. The truth is always more complicated than fiction. It would be so nice if this story had a neat beginning and neat middle and, and I wrapped the whole thing up with a little bow on it but true crime doesn't work like that. It's Mm. always more complicated and it never finishes because the people who were affected by these murders are still alive and they're still grieving today. Absolutely. It's a,
1: it's quite a sad story in almost every way you can think of really. Yeah, there's not a lot of laughs. No, (laughs) Um, and it all centers around the, the town in the title of the book. So I thought maybe we could start to some extent with telling us a bit about
2: the town. About Bowerville. About Bowerville. Mm. Bowerville is beautiful. It's on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, a little way inland from the coast itself. It's set among the, this dark, rich, green, subtropical countryside. And it's a tiny little jewel of a town that looks like it hasn't changed in decades it's it's wooden fronted stores and pastel colored houses and then on the edge of the town there's the mission the aboriginal mission which is a completely separate world it's all along one road cemetery road and there's just a, a line of, of single-story brick houses where the town's black population lives and the two towns, it feels, are almost entirely separate. There's a white Bowererville and a black Bowererville. And that's how it was when the time the murders happened. And to a great extent, that's how it is today. And also, my first impression going there was that the town had never recovered from the murders. These are 25 years ago, or thereabouts, when I first went to Bowererville. And it felt like the murders still hung very heavily over the town. Partly because the... Everyone was so close, it's so small. The victims' families lived literally on the same street as the families of the murder suspect. They saw each other daily. That's how small in a town it is, and that's the lasting effect of these killings. Absolutely, and it really feels quite close, the way you've
1: written it, that feeling of claustrophobia mm-hmm. in the town and racial tension in particular mm-hmm. between the mission and the white yeah, uh, yeah, the white people who live in the town. And yet
2: it's so beautiful. It should be paradise. Mm.
1: It, and it's, it's quite close to Nambucca Heads. So, very close, yeah. yeah. Which is gorgeous.
2: Yeah. Absolutely beautiful area. And the river runs right through it, and yet it's not the place it should be because of what happened. Absolutely.
1: Um, you had obviously quite an experience trying to... Well, it, was this your first time working as closely with Indigenous people? or um, well, not your first time, but was this the closest over this with, Over
2: this length maybe. of time and, and as, as closely mm. as this? I had lived in an Aboriginal community before in the middle of the, the desert out here. Um, for six months, my wife was a teacher out in a remote community. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time I'd worked with a community like this, and there was a lot to learn. And it was a story that that detective who first introduced me to the case, he went through a similar experience where he went to investigate these murders and he had a, 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 an Aboriginal community and a police force that had been completely separate over this investigation. Those, those two sides weren't talking to each other and he had to learn how to break that down. And I was able to use some of what he told me to to start to, not break things down, but start to get to know these people as well. Mm. So it's... You learn a lot from it. He's learned a lot, he says, and I learned a lot. They're, they're some of the best people I've ever met.
1: These yeah. families
2: are, are tough and brave and decent and trusting. And I'm really, really proud to have, have known them.
1: Absolutely. I was really moved by the moment in the book where you talk about having to approach interviewing because you're not just interviewing individual people because they are all living mm. in one very small town. You are interviewing a community to a huge extent, I guess. So, having to earn people's trust individually yeah. and spend yeah. time with them in order to, you know, and the etiquette of interviewing Indigenous people relative to um, your usual interview. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, for in, example, in the circumstances. I, I didn't
2: look directly at people. Like <clears throat> You and I are facing each other now. Mm. Um, but I, I was told. And I I learned that that's quite confrontational, um, certainly within that community. So I'd sit at 90 degrees to people, and we'd talk, but we'd both be staring in different directions because, I mean, what I was saying on confrontation, I'm asking fathers to describe their son's murder. I'm asking mothers to describe the disappearance of their daughter. So what I was doing itself was harsh enough. So anything I could do to lessen the blow, I did. Mm. So there's little things you can do like that 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 do make a difference. And the other thing I learned, which was really important, this took me ages. And this, I think, it it goes beyond talking to to people from any particular community. It's actually just decent behavior was not to just go up there and ask my questions and expect answers and then disappear, Mm. but to go up there and have conversations and tell people what I knew first... So, to offer something in the conversation, and then they might offer something in return. And also, and uh, there was a, a lady up in Bowerville who told me this to ask the question, What can I do for you in return? Because mm. going up there as a reporter, as a, as a writer, I kind of just assumed that it was enough that I was telling the story, that, that they'd be grateful for that. Mm. And actually, no, it's not, because you turn up. A guy said to me, don't just be another white reporter who turns up, asks us questions, and then disappears, and we never hear from you again. So each of the families I went to and I said, what can I do for you in return? And they all said, just do what you're doing.
0: So is that what you mean when, like, the blurb of this book says that you're dealing with your own uncomfortable realisation that you're a reporter who crossed the line?
2: Is that... Do you want
0: to expand on that a little?
2: Yeah, look, that was more particularly about one thing. So, with this case, the suspect who was at the centre of the investigation contacted me midway through the process of doing the podcast, of doing the, the reporting on it, and spoke to me and was quite happy, strangely enough, with us broadcasting the conversation and using that conversation. And then we ended up, providing that conversation to the police because they asked for it and it was used in evidence in court which I didn't know was going to happen until I was sitting in court and they said what about the box transcripts? My name's Dan Box so what about the interview I did? And they were talking specifically about that interview with the suspected killer. So we'd gone from being I'd gone from being a straight newspaper reporter where you get to stand back and be objective and kind of wash your hands of what you're doing because you're just reporting At the newspaper, we campaigned about this case to send it back to court. So that's a step closer. Mm -hmm. And then my reporting was used in evidence. And then right at the end, one of the lawyers came to me and said, you do realise that if this goes to trial, you're going to get called as a witness. So I'd gone from being someone who could stand back and say I'm not actually involved to someone who was campaigning to suddenly I was actually a witness to what happened. I got far, far... Closer to this case than I ever meant to than I'd ever done before and emotionally like you're saying in terms of engaging with the people the police the families I was much much closer and I completely lost that objectivity that reporters like to say we have and actually it makes our lives a lot easier to say we have that because we don't have to care we don't have to pick a side but doing this I had to care and I had to pick a side that's what I mean by that Absolutely, and I feel like you
1: see that starting to happen in um, as as you get involved in the community. Mm. You know, you arrive. I think it's when you started to record the podcast, mm. and you'd already written a little bit about it and interviewed some of the families by phone. I assume. Yeah, or, at that point. Yeah, and is it Muriel Collett? Is Colette's mother or am I uh, right? Colleen's mother? Colleen's mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, no. uh, and she says something like you know, you didn't talk to me at all. Yeah, this, and, this was a really... And you didn't yeah. wait, you yeah. know. And that... I, I sensed that moment in you in
2: the book that, that yeah. you were just... realised it was a different type of story. Yeah, right? it, it was exactly that. It <clears throat> What I was doing had real-world implications. In that case, I'd, I'd written a piece for the paper. I got quotes from the other families of two of the other victims. Mm. I hadn't got one from her family. And I didn't realize how offended she'd be by that. She was furious. She called me up and tore me apart. Mm. And it was a lesson in grief. And another one of the elders up there took me out and said to me, you have to realize that what you're writing, it affects people's lives. And it's so easy to forget that or not to learn it. But on this story, in this case, you do, I learned about the effect my work was having. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I feel like we should probably lay out just the very basics of what the story, of what actually, yeah. all the yeah. sort of uncontested facts of what yeah. of what happened. Obviously, there's yeah. a lot of complexity on top of that. Um, would you like to just let us? So, I we mean, should have started with this
2: probably, but it's okay. I was going to jump in and say something, <laughs> but you just got <laughs> well, the, the bare facts of it so, three children um, Colleen Walker Craig, she was 16, Evelyn Greenup, she was four. Clinton Speedy... Sorry, Clinton Speedy Durot. He was also 16. So two 16-year-olds and a four-year-old all disappear from Barrival within five months between 1990 and 1991. All of them are living on the same street when they disappear. In fact, the houses they're staying in are about 100 metres apart. All disappear after parties on the mission. The same white man is seen at all of those parties. Two of the bodies are found in bushland above Bower River, dumped in the same way beside the road. The third body is never found, but a bag full of clothes are found in the river, just where that road passes over a bridge. And that man who was seen at one of the parties is charged with two of the murders, but is found not guilty. But the police would never accept that. and for. Twenty years the police fought to send that back to court. Those are the bare bones of it. Mm. But there's that was so much, much more. Phrase. <laughs> I can't believe I said the bare bones of it. But the bare facts of the case. The bare facts of the, the case. bare facts it's of the fine. case. I think there's. I think we can be understanding. <laughs> okay. It's a.
1: Comp- it's a very complicated case. Uh, I mean, and the police, uh, even though I think you cast them in a positive light in so far as you can. Are also implicated in some of the way Absolutely. that it, it happens, and I mean the the way that the story unfolds at the beginning. You talk about how the police's initial reaction to being given these missing person reports, and how mm-hmm. they just sort of dismiss yeah. um, the you know the the concerns of the parents as you know oh, they've just gone walk about. Absolutely chilled my spine yeah. that the police
2: would each, do that. Each of the three families, <clears throat> when the children's Each of the three families, when they reported their children missing, were told by the police, maybe they've just gone walkabout. And there's so much disregard and casual racism and misunderstanding loaded into that phrase. Mm. And that carried through the police investigation at the start. They didn't take it seriously. They didn't connect the three disappearances. Who knows what they failed to find in terms of evidence as a result? And because of that initial... Racism, maybe unthinking racism, and the fact that the police didn't resource the investigation. This was worked by three detectives using a manual typewriter in the back of one of their cars, and it was a triple murder. There was no strike force of a 100 detectives. There was no mass outcry. They let this one slide, and because of that, you never know what evidence was missed. If the reaction had been different, and it would have been different if they were three white kids in North Sydney, mm. the whole result would have been a completely different story.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's crushing. that The way that he was initially charged mm. and the trial went ahead for the mm. first two murders, and that they were treated separately by the courts. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, this is where you start to get into the complexities Mm. of it, because it's a true crime story, it's not fiction it is fiddly and it's it's difficult to to wrap your head around, but what happened was this man is charged with two of the murders because only two of the bodies were found Mm. and a judge says we're going to separate these trials, we're not going to hear them together, and that's In law at the time, the way it stood, that's a perfectly fair and just decision. But the result of that is that neither jury was told that more than one child disappeared. So similar circumstances to each of the murders, similar towns, similar uh, locations, similar ages. The juries are not told any of that. They only know that one child has disappeared from Barrowville. As a result, the families argue the juries were never given the evidence they needed to come to a certain decision. And the juries didn't come to that decision. No court still, no jury has ever heard evidence about all three murders at the same time. That's what the police were hoping to achieve. That has still never happened. In that sense, this story has never been heard. It's never been told where it should have been in full in a court of law.
1: Absolutely. In only five months. In five months. astounding but. You know there are stories about missing kids that yeah. last for years and years and years in this in the media, yeah. And that over five months, that they weren't able to put they it together weren't. for years. Not, before. It, okay. it's astounding to me. Justice um, looks
0: very different for depending on where you sit,
1: it does and what, and what it yeah. means to you, it does, yeah. And it, it seems like, and also because the kids were so different to each other, you know, 16 year olds aren't as sympathetic as. As younger kids, mm. obviously, apparently, indigenous people are not as sympathetic no. to the media environment. No,
2: You're right, there's a theory, ideal victim theory. Different mm. victims get treated in different ways. If you're the ideal victim, ideally white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, good family, right part of town, you're going to get so much more attention from the media. And I've, I've done this in my own head when I'm at crime scenes or when I was a crime reporter You know which cases are going to get more interest from your bosses because they're going to get more interest from the general public. And it's never the Aboriginal kid from a broken home. It's always the white, blonde, pretty, wealthy kid. And in this case, you had three kids, Aboriginal, didn't get a lot of attention from the media at the time, didn't get a lot of attention from the police. They disappeared in real life and then they disappeared again in the way we responded to it.
1: Absolutely, and the attention you got from the podcast, which was quite successful, mm. had an effect, I guess, on that, and it sort of changed that narrative, at least in this one narrow case. Yeah,
2: and that—that's why, as a writer, as a reporter, the last thing you want to do is, is become part of the story. Every fibre of your being screams against that, because you're trained not to do it, and also it's impossible to report on yourself objectively. But in this case, the podcast did play a role in changing what happened after the podcast. The families were also campaigning at the same time. The police put in a renewed push to get this sent back to court after those things happened together. And the podcast just amplified the families' voices because you could hear them talking about the murders. After all of that, the government did, having refused to do it repeatedly in the past, send the murders back to the appeal court. So something changed. Mm. And after the podcast, the commissioner of police flew to Bowerville and apologised to the families. Would those things have happened without it? I don't know if they would.
0: It's interesting that a true crime podcast being used in that way, because a lot of them are kind of more focused on our fascination with Mm. killing, with what it takes to kill another Mm. person Mm. and just about the murder as a whole. Um, And the murder. But there is a, yeah. Yeah. And some of them do it better than others um, and take different approaches. But it's interesting with your podcast and Mm. then also something like the Chris Dawson case where it's actually drumming up enough interest for people to urge it to be revisited.
2: Yeah, but then you you hit this question I was talking about before. If you are drumming up interest, and we were, is that what you're supposed to do? Because if that's what you're doing, you're no longer standing back and being fair and being objective. You can try and be all those things, but actually you've got an agenda here i mean Mm. we deliberately at the paper wanted the attorney general to make a certain decision to send this to court and we pursued that now we did that because we thought it was the right thing to do but it meant that we could no longer say we are completely fair we are completely objective because we had a reason to do this and the same with the teacher's pet podcast they had a reason to report on it I think it was the right thing to do. I mean, I vehemently believe it was the right thing to do. But we did have to sacrifice that ability to stand back and say, we're completely cool, calm, and objective here. Because mm. we no longer were. We were players in that game.
1: Absolutely. Even if it's just wanting the justice system to yeah. treat the yeah. process yeah. properly. Yes.
2: Mm. Because in part of saying that, you're saying the justice system hasn't treated the process properly. Yeah. We were saying... All the evidence of all three murders has never been heard in court and it should, but that's a judgment call. Mm.
1: Absolutely. So you said at the beginning of uh, of our chat that you feel less, more ambivalent or about the, about how you felt about it at least after Mm. the podcast was finished. Um, How do you feel about it now? Do you, do you think that the person who is implicated is, is still the guy.
2: Right. I've spoken to him more than once now. Mm-hmm. And I've met him and spoken to him in, in the flesh. And I've spoken to his neighbours. And I know he has kids. And I know he has grandkids. And I know he... According to him and according to his neighbours, he loves his kid. And he's a good dad and a good granddad. So, even though... When I started out, this was the man who I was being told by the police killed three children and now at that point he's abstract he's kind of a shadow you can fill in in your imagination now he's a living breathing father and grandfather of real children it's so much harder to form that kind of judgment in your own head when it's actually real when it's a person and you've shaken him by the hand and I have done and they've spoken to him like I'm doing with you now Even that alone made it so much harder to be comfortable and confident with with my own decision-making. Maybe that's how the jury felt when they sat in the room, in the courtroom, and they sat and they saw him living and breathing in front of them. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But it is a hard decision to come to about a real person. Absolutely.
1: And yet, I guess, all murderers
2: are real people. They all are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing is he was found not guilty. Mm. Whatever happened in those two trials, and I've sort of explained what happened there, he was found not guilty. Mm. In the eyes of the law, I can't say that he did it. Mm. I actually can't. A court has found twice that he is not guilty of those crimes, or rather he's not been found guilty of those crimes. Mm. two things are slightly different. Mm. And unfortunately, that's where we are at the moment. Whoever killed those children, is still walking around today. Yeah. And that's a serial killing.
1: Well. Wow. I (laughs) feel like that's a good place to leave it. I do too. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to us, Dan. Thank you for your time. chilling and fascinating. Thank Mm -hmm. you both.
0: And you can order your copy of Bowerville from booktopia.com.au or from your local bookstore. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.